it's you, man, from KC95 here. Good evening and welcome to Toasted Tavern. Your host, Scott Tobin, and the man called Wags are ready to bring you the night in sports. So pull up a stool, grab a drink, and let's get toasted. Good evening and welcome into the Toasted Tavern. Yes, that's two days in a row that you're going to be seeing us. And in fact, it might be three days. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But uh, I am Wags, joined alongside by Scott Tobin. And unlike Pete Alonzo, when we get hit with the baseball, we react. Oh, wait, he didn't really get hit. Uh, Cards and Mets in action right now. We'll get into that here in just a bit. We'll recap the Blues and Avalanche Game 1, talk a little, a little bit about the NBA, and also some news out of the NCAA as well, which uh, kind of hit in the last hour or so. That's very intriguing, and we'll talk about that. But uh, first off, Scott, man, how you doing? How's, uh, how's your day been? I know it's only been 24 hours since we've seen each other last, but a lot still can happen. Uh, it's all right, man. Uh, a long day, but... Uh... It's gotten better in the last 20 minutes. It's always good to get back together with you and talk some sports. So my day is picked up. Let's just say that. Oh, how sweet. Uh, I I don't usually get that reaction. You know, I'm a sweet guy, man. What do you expect? (laughs) Well, you're decked out in the Cardinal gear as well. I know, you know, Cardinals, it's through and through. Your your blood is legitimately red. It is Cardinal red. And, you know, they're in in New York tonight in game three of their series. They split the uh, doubleheader yesterday. A bit of a come-from-behind victory in a sense, even though they were tied going into the ninth. It still had that feel of a a team that was trying to continuously come back in that game. Uh, Definitely something that needed to happen. They needed to get one of those games yesterday. And after the kind of lackluster outing in game one, for them to – fall behind a couple of different times early on in that game, battle back, take the lead, and then eventually come around and win that game. Uh, definitely a, a morale booster going into a, a day where you're facing Max Scherzer, who's one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball and one who beat you just a couple of weeks ago. And and that confidence level has kind of continued on in this game as you know they fell behind early once again and were able to battle back just a half an inning later. So it, the, the feel for the Cardinals, at least right now, is it's, Maybe if they can get some more runs off of Scherzer, this might be the start of something pretty good. Yeah, you know, and they always battle Max Tough. As, as good of a pitcher as Max is, the Cardinals always put up a pretty good fight against him. You know, his his career record against the Cardinals isn't the best. I think they actually have a winning record against Scherzer, to be honest with you. Um, and they, you know, they don't score a ton of runs off of him, but they can usually get him for two or three or sometimes four. And if your pitching can hold up, you're uh, in good shape. And I told you coming – Right before we came on the show, I looked at the lineup today and thought, you know, what are we doing here? It kind of looks like a throwaway game. And I even questioned, you know, what's Albert doing in the lineup? You know, we all know that he struggles a little bit against right-handers, especially hard-throwing right-handers. And I'm like, what's he doing going up against Max? And then, of course, who gets the two-run hit single to tie the game? Of course, the great Albert Pujols. I have no idea why at this point in my life I question anything that Albert does, to be honest with you. Well, yeah, I mean, he can pitch now. He's doing right. everything. He played right. the field. He played the field a couple of times this year. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's Albert. I mean, he does what he needs to do in, in the times. He's a, he's a clutch hitter. And I was actually on my way out to a meeting with my boss today, and that's something we were talking about was, you know, clutch hitters. The fact that uh, a lot of teams are looking at analytics and they don't uh, factor in what a clutch hitter can do. You know, it's all about a guy getting a hit. It's not so much about – RBIs or, or anything like that. And it, it feels like, especially in the Cardinals organization, the, the, the value of clutch hitters has kind of gone down a little bit. And you've got some of the best on this team in, in Major League Baseball history. You've got a Yadier Molina. You've got an Albert Pools, two of the biggest clutch hitters in the game. And yet it seems like they're moving away from it. And a lot of teams are moving away from it 
to really focus on the analytics side of things where it's just about the hit. It's not about where you're at in the lineup. If you can string the guys together to get hits, the runs will eventually come. You're not looking for guys that can drive in runs in, in certain situations. It's something that just you, you step back and you look at it and you go, wow, that, that really is happening. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. And fans have kind of gotten away from it too. You know, that always cracks me up when I hear people talk about, you know, oh man, they keep putting Yachty out there. Yachty just doesn't hit that much anymore. There is nobody. Well, now with Albert, I'll, I'll say that those two. But other than Albert, there's nobody on this team in a key spot. Not Paul Goldschmidt, not Nolan Arenado, not Tyler O'Neill. None of those guys would I rather have at the plate in a key spot than Yachty. Because like you said, he's not going to try to do too much. You know, how many times have we seen him take that outside pitch and just flip his wrist and slap the ball into right field and drive home a tying run or a go-ahead run? You know, I mean, he's just clutch. And like you said, people have kind of kind of take that for granted now. You know, it's just not, you know, everybody's analytics and look at your OPS and your OPS plus and the, and the things that really matter, people don't seem to pay a whole lot of attention to anymore. No, and I'm not sitting here saying analytics needs to go away. Analytics right. are a huge part of this game, and you can't not look at trends and things of that nature. But it's something that I've always stressed, and I, I think we've talked about this on the show multiple times, that you got to have a combination of multiple things. You have to have analytics. You have to have statistics. You have to have the eye test. You have to have the gut test, too. I mean, it's not just the eye. I mean, you have to have a bit of a gut, and that's why you see some of these managers continuing to be recycled in a lot of different sports is because they have a good gut as right. well. And yeah, maybe it doesn't work out for them, but you know, you're, you're putting everything into the, into the pot and using all of the information you have to make the decisions versus just taking one side of things and really putting all your eggs in that basket. And then when things go wrong, you can point, you, you can't really point at it and go, Oh, well the analytics said it was, this was going to happen, but it didn't, you, you, you got to have some sort of explanation and, having just one data data point essentially isn't really enough to be successful in, in any sport really, or in, in a lot of different things, honestly. No, you're right. You know, and things, little things in baseball, the analytics don't look at, you know, people always say, Oh, you know, a strikeout, any outs and out a strike, strikeout, whatever doesn't matter. Well, how many times this season have we seen the Cardinals prove that wrong by putting the ball in play and advancing runners? I mean, they've had more sacrifice flies, and given themselves up to advanced runners this year that I've seen in the last three or four years, and analytics don't take that into, into consideration. And the same thing with running. You know, that's a big part of the reason why the stolen base has kind of gone away from baseball because analytics looks at it as a bad decision. Where would the Cardinals be this year if it wasn't for their base running and their, their base stealing? I mean, you know, how many runs have they stolen from teams this year? because of their base running, stealing an extra base, and then getting wild throws and things like that. And those are things that analytics don't really take into consideration when they look at a team's statistics. No, they really don't. As uh, Mark Canna has just gotten plunked by Jordan Hicks and Buck Showalter out there trying to do something. I mean, the, the fact that this is happening against the Mets yet again just – is is baffling. We we talked a little bit uh, earlier about the the, the hit by pitch that wasn't against Pete Alonso. Uh, you know, you had the whole ordeal when they were here in St. Louis. Stubby Clap taking down Pete Alonso, all this kind of stuff, and then the ball clips off the knob of his bat, but he somehow, even after review, gets to go to first base as he was hit by the pitch. And now Canna gets hit by a pitch. Buck Showalter not happy about it. It just. The, the, it's it's nice to have that rivalry back with the Mets because both teams are good and there's a, there's some animosity between the two. But the fact that Jordan Hicks has not been around the plate very much, he's very he much struggled with his command so far tonight. 
none of those were intentional. Um, you know, you can look at it as maybe it is, but I don't think it is. And I think so far the umps, although I think the umps did give a warning I think there on that uh, on that hit by pitch. But once again, you're you're getting into this this venue of ticky tack things in a sense, and hit by pitches are not ticky tack. I mean, they hurt. Trust me, they hurt. But they're not at the head. It's not like it was when Arenado got thrown at and then eventually got suspended for not getting hit. It, it, it's still, it's just, it's, it's one of those icky feelings that you're getting between these two teams, and you can't help it because Jordan Hicks hasn't had any control tonight. Right. Yeah, it's it, it's going to be interesting. But you know that all, like you said, that all goes back to that first series in St. Louis, which things got blown out of proportion in that series. I think, I think Nolan was a you know as big of a Nolan Arenado fan as I am. I think Nolan way overreacted in that whole situation because you go back and look at that pitch and it really wasn't that close to him at all. Um, but, you know, it's, it's going to build. And I don't know if you watched the end of the game last night or if you were watching the Flues game, but he came up and pinched hit in the ninth inning and struck out. And McLaughlin and Jimmy didn't make a big deal out of it. But after he struck out, you could hear the Mets fans chanting, Nolan, Nolan. You know, and those are just old things to go back to the old Cardinals-Mets rivalries of the 80s. I mean, I can remember the old – being a little kid going to Bush Stadium and Mookie Wilson would come to bat at Bush Stadium and 50,000 people would be chanting Mookie, you know, when he was in the outfield or at bat and just, you know, those, the pond scum days, it would be fun to have that rivalry back because we very well could see these two teams in the playoffs and possibly in the NLCS, quite honestly. We really could. And it would be a, a big, big time series. I mean, obviously back there in, in 06, that series against the Mets was, the epitome of just nails on a chalkboard, edge of your seat, just heart racing action. And in a series that the Cardinals probably shouldn't have won because the Mets were a better team that year. Uh, but it really was the, that, that whole David Goliath thing that the Cardinals ended up winning and then eventually, you know, going on to win the world series that year. Um, so having that kind of rivalry back and that, and just the battles back between those two teams and, there's not, I don't feel like there's as much, well, you know, honestly, I think there might be as much animosity between the players themselves as well, because there was a lot of hatred in that series, you know, with the, with Jose Reyes and Carlos Beltran, you know, obviously the Beltran thing kind of is a wash because he became a Cardinal. Uh, but I feel like, you know, with Lindor, with, with Alonzo, you are starting to get some of that hatred for the other team. That's that you don't see that as much in sports nowadays because of free agency and the moving of, of players back and forth and across different areas. It's kind of refreshing to see that hatred between teams. Yeah. You know, and, and the Cardinals, the Cardinals have been lucky to have some of those, you know, the last few years, it goes back to, you know, the Tony and dusty days when he was in San Francisco before Chicago and Cincinnati, even. but you know, those rivalries were there, you know, there was, there was that kind of disdain there. The Cardinals and Astros had that to a certain extent. I mean, there was a lot of respect between those teams, but there was also a lot of animosity there too between the fans and fan bases because those were great ball clubs. But yeah, if you could get that rivalry back with the Mets and just build on on that tradition that there was, because those were some those were some fun fun series. Like I said, going back to the '80s and then, like you said, 2006. That series was that series was about as intense as you could get. And, you know, for everybody that remembers, Yachty ended up being the guy that broke the Mets' heart in 06. So, uh, talking about cl- as we go back to being clutch, yeah, not much more clutch than Yachty hitting that home run because I think everybody thought that series was over when Eddie Chavez robbed Scott Rowland in the home run the inning before that. I, I think a lot of people were. I was one of those that was thinking that same thing, and you had the air uh, as well that, that 
could have led to some some big runs. But then to have Yachty come up and break, you know, break the hearts, and then and then Wainwright broke the, the knees of Carlos Beltran. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of breaking that was done by the Cardinals in that instance. And we just saw, you know, the claw visit Jordan Hicks as he is uh, in some trouble once again here in the third. Two one no outs with Pete Alonso up at the plate. Uh, you were talking to me before we came on about how you know, you're done with the Jordan Hicks experience. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm kind of right there with you. Because it was something that coming into the season that we were even questioning because he had missed all of last season. And, and then you're going to try and push him out there to be a starter. It hadn't even really pitched in the last year. So at this point, yes, his innings have increased. He's, he pitched his longest outing five innings last uh, Friday against the Mets. But you made the great point that the Cardinals continue to lose every single game, essentially, that he goes out there and pitches because he gives up two to three runs per per game which isn't an insurmountable kind of thing. But then you have the bullpen that comes in after that isn't always going to be your best guys because they have to pitch four, sometimes five innings. So you're not going to waste those guys. Yes, this is probably just a stop stopgap until Jack Flaherty comes back. But as we talked about last night, we're not even sure when that's going to happen. So do you sit there and go, okay, if this is what we're getting out of Jordan Hicks, why not move him to the bullpen and bring up a guy like Matthew Libertor, who – might be in the same kind of boat where maybe he only pitches four or five innings, but at least now you're getting a bit of a look at the future and a guy that's already used to being a starter. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. Or the thing that's perplexed me about this team is, you know, he pitched really well the second half of the season last year. It's like Ali Marble just did. Well, he's not even on the team now. They sent him back down, but it was like Ali Marble was afraid to use Jake Woodford or would use him. You know, I mean, you could get what you've gotten out of Jordan Hicks out of Jake Woodford every fifth day and then have Hicks as a relief pitcher to come in after that or something. I mean, you know, but what's going to happen in this game is, you know, Hicks has already had a ton of pitches in the third inning. So, you know, even if you're going to have to use three or four relief pitchers and probably they're, like you said, they're not going to be your best relief pitchers because you're going to see a Drew Verhagen and a, you know, Packy Naughton or somebody out there. And, you know, when you have to run those kind of guys out there, two or three of those guys, Chances are most nights one of those guys isn't going to be good, and that's what's happened every time Jordan Hicks has started. One of those guys hasn't been good, and sometimes you have to use three or four of them, and sometimes two of them aren't good. You know, so it's just it just feels like we're playing every fifth day is a throwaway game, and you know when the National League is is balanced as it is this year, you can't afford to be doing that. You know, I mean, I know it's only April and May, and you can say there's plenty of time, but we all know that these games count just as much as the games in September do. Yeah, you got to take advantage of uh, every opportunity you can get, collect as many wins as you possibly can. TJ McFarland is up in the Cardinals bullpen getting loose. And that once again, there to your point exactly, you're going to have a guy that's coming in that struggled so far this year. What's to say that that's going to change here against a very good New York Mets lineup? You just don't know. And the fact that you've already come back and you know battled to tie the game back a half an inning after giving up the lead, now you may have to do the same thing again against a guy like Max Scherzer, who, you, yeah, you scored two runs off of him, but sometimes that's all you get. You know, you don't right. necessarily score in multiple innings against a guy like Max Scherzer unless he's just off. And that's not something the Cardinals have shown that they can do consistently, not just against Max Scherzer, but in a lot of cases against pitchers in general this year. I mean, in their losses, they very rarely score in multiple innings. So it, it's it, it's just one of those things that, it makes you go, why? I mean, I understand part of it. Obviously, you're missing some of your starters with Flaherty and Reyes being out, but 
you, you took a guy that hadn't pitched and now you're trying to force him into a starters role on a very important in a very important season on a very important team with aspirations of winning a, a championship because you there's you brought back Pujols for that reason alone really to give him another shot it's his and Yadi's and Wayno's last year perhaps and yet you're going to go out there and every fifth day potentially have a throwaway game and that's not to take anything away from Jordan Hicks I like Jordan Hicks I think he's a guy that could be very very important in this in this rotation or this bullpen as he's actually gotten the, the next two guys to pop out to the shortstop so really really good job by Jordan Hicks so far but I don't, almost don't think it's fair to him because he's still a young guy trying to build up that confidence. Yeah, it, it, it's just a weird situation. I don't, I don't really understand it. You know, like you said, you know, all we heard all offseason was that fifth spot was going to be Drew Verhagen's or Jake Woodford's. And then, like, the day before the season starts, they're like, oh, Jordan Hicks is our fifth starter. And this has been the plan since last year. Yep. Well, no, it hasn't because this is the first time we've heard of it. You know, it was like they panicked and just said, oh, hey, guess what? You're our fifth starter now because we don't know what to do. Um, so I don't know. You know, that's just kind of frustrating to me. So we'll see what happens. You would have to think at some point, although you know, Libertor's pitched pretty well. So is Oviedo down. Yeah. Well, actually, Zach Thompson has too. So you've got three guys that are pretty highly regarded prospects that have all pitched pretty well in Memphis. At some point, you think you're going to see one of those guys. You would you would hope, although they are awfully fond of Pac, they are awfully fond of Packy Dot. I, I mean, he pitched decently well last night. Don't get me wrong, Packy no, Dot did did pitch well, but he's one of those guys that you cannot continuously run out there day after day after day. You don't want to a burn him out and c b, you know have to rely on him when you could very well bring in a, a pitcher that can go six, maybe seven innings where you don't necessarily have to use your bullpen as frequently as you can. And that's something that the Cardinals have had issues with the last few years is having to extend the use of their bullpen. So by the time you get to the end of the season, you burnt through as many arms as you possibly could. Well, and remember a couple of years ago when we were all going crazy because Mike Matheny would throw Matt Bowman out there every day. That's kind of what's happening with Ali Marmol and TJ McFarland. It's like TJ McFarland is the only guy in the bullpen. It's like, what are you doing, man? He can't pitch every day, and he hasn't been very good this year. No, agreed. 100%. 100%. I, I want to go back and touch on uh, our conversation about Albert here real quick because uh, we did not mention the fact that uh, he did kind of set a record, not necessarily set a record, but continue to up his uh, Hall of Fame numbers. On that base hit, he moved into a tie with Eddie Collins for 10th place on the all-time hit list, hit list 33-13. So uh, congratulations there to Albert as Hicks gets the strikeout to end the inning. So two on, no outs, and he gets around it. So, I mean, once again, I, I feel I think we both feel like Hicks as a starter may not be a long-term solution, but at least he's still continuing to go out there and battle even when he doesn't have his best stuff. And when your best stuff, and when you're when you're not best stuff, still is 100 miles an hour with good break. I mean, you might be able to get away with some stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I think Jordan Hicks could be a starter. You know, next year, you know, you build him up. I think he could be, give you six or seven innings. But you know, when he's only giving you three or four at the most five, it's just hard to do that every fifth day, in my estimation. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree 100. percent And I think you needed to have a extended spring training for him to be able to work himself out into that starters role instead of trying to use the regular season to do that. I agree. 
So uh, let's let's quickly jump back to yesterday's uh, game two. We talked about game one during our show last night. We were in the middle of game two when we came on for you guys last night. But uh, Stephen Matz first uh, appearance uh, in New York since he signed with the Cardinals. Obviously, there's some animosity there between the owner uh, Cohen and and Stephen Matz because he thought he was going to re-sign with the the Mets and did not. Uh, Mats did give up a couple home runs to Canna and Escobar, gave the Mets a two to one lead. But we talked about it last night. Paul Goldschmidt was a guy that has been red hot as of late. Uh, in fact, I believe he's raised his batting average roughly around 40 points in the last week. And he's up in the mid 300s right now. He had a couple of RBI doubles to uh, tie that game a couple of different times for the Cardinals. So he produced yesterday. Tommy Edmond hit a triple that drove in the, uh, the uh, a run as well. And then the much maligned Tyler O'Neill. Ended up driving in that winning run in the ninth inning after the Mets had tied it in the eighth. Although, he did have six strikeouts over the course of the two games yesterday. So, I don't know if the balance is actually balanced. Because one RBI game winning hit versus six strikeouts. I don't know where the the, the weight shift is on that one. Yeah, although, you know what? We were talking about this when it happened last night. A lot of times, when guys are in bad slumps like that, a little excuse me hit like he got last night to win that game might break him out of it. You know, that might be the thing that kind of turns his momentum. Because if you saw him after that event, I mean, he was smi- he had a huge smile on his face, relief. You know, he might just relax now, and who knows? Maybe he'll go on a roll, on a run, because we all know he's capable. It's just it's just a matter of time before Tyler breaks out. I really do believe that. And I hope you're right, because uh, I was looking through some stuff today, and he's uh, not very good on the sliders. In fact, he is... 0.00000 hitting on any sliders that he has been thrown, which is not good. Um, it, it's something that you, you look at and you go, how, how are teams just not continuously throwing him sliders all the time? Why would you even consider throwing him a fastball or any other pitch besides a slider? Uh, but, you know, he had the propensity last year. He showed that he can hit. He's still a guest hitter in my mind. I, I, I still think he is a guest hitter, but he guessed right last year and now it's not so much that he's guessing wrong. I mean, you made the point a couple of different times that it just seems like something's off. Not that he is not seeing what's coming his way, but there's just something physically off in, in his at bats right now. Yeah. Something there's some part of his swing, some part of his trigger. That's just a little behind. That's not letting him catch up with pitches. So, you know, I think he's going to figure it out. I think he's going to get going and it's funny. I was looking at this today. As much as we want to rip on Tyler O'Neill and say, man, he's having a horrible year. As good as Paul Goldschmidt has been, he's only got three more RBIs than Tyler O'Neill does. And Nolan Arnato, who's the player of the month, only has eight more RBIs than Tyler O'Neill does. He's tied for 10th in the National League in RBIs, and we're complaining about the guy. That That is the crazy thing, and that's why, once again, you cannot continuously always just look at the numbers because you look at that and you go, oh, he's top 10 in RBIs. That must mean he's he's killing it. So you keep him going into the lineup every day, every day, every day, but then you watch and you go, okay, well, the swing's off just a little bit. Maybe even his body language is off a little bit. So then you have to sit there and go, okay, maybe he needs to have a day off or something. Is that a really low strike on Corey Dickerson? But uh, that's Max Scherzer on the mound for you. But that's the thing, though. You, you know, you have to weigh that. You have to sit there and go, okay, maybe he does need to sit a game or two to kind of reset his mind. Maybe not go down to the minors like Paul DeYoung has been having to do, but maybe it is sit a game here, sit a game there to kind of reset, and that's all because you looked at the body language versus just looking at the fact that he is 10th in the league in RBIs. Right, yeah. You know, and hopefully, you know, they, they've done a nice job of giving him some rest. You know, he had two days off. He played the doubleheader. 
you know, he's off again today against Scherzer. So hopefully you get him back out there tomorrow and maybe he starts to build on some stuff. And I mean, like you said, he struck out six times. He had the infield single and then his other hit was a hundred mile an hour fastball that he turned around and hit a line drive bullet into left field. So, you know, maybe things will start to turn around a little bit for Tyler. I mean, and we really need him to, like we talked about last night, you know, he's really the key for this offense to be consistent night in, night out. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, the nice thing is the bullpen did get a chance to uh, pitch well. They basically went four innings yesterday, did uh, only gave up two hits, gave up one unearned run, that ended up tying things up in the eighth. They, the, 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 the crazy thing is, though, they gave up six walks, and that's a little discerning as well because that's a lot of walks for four innings, and they were able to kind of pitch around it, obviously, only giving up the one unearned run, but – the fact that Matts came in, didn't walk a batter, and struck out seven, and then your bullpen walks six guys, um, as good as the, the stat line was, that doesn't make you feel good at this point. No, yeah, there, there was definitely some struggles with the control. And then, you know, Andrew Kisner had some issues behind the plate last night. You know, the run that they scored, you know, the guy got on base because of a strikeout and a bit, you know, ball got past Kisner, and the guy gets on first base, and then, you know, you get a walk and a hit, and, uh, Ryan Helsley gave up his first run of the year. Unfortunately, luckily for him, it was unearned. But Ryan Hel- Ryan Helsley's just been nasty. I mean, that guy is almost unhittable this year. He's like a totally different pitcher watching him out there. And it's good to see. I mean, because he, he's one of those guys that you know deserves uh, success. Somebody that's put in a lot of hard work, and and it's good to see that uh, he's getting that. And it's a big game for the Cardinals tonight as well. Brewers take uh, a seven six victory over the Braves today in eleven innings. So in order to kind of keep pace with them. Uh, you you got to find some way to win this game and and really maybe put a little bit of a I wouldn't say a stain on Max Scherzer but you know say hey look we can beat you and if a team that you're facing right now is someone you're possibly facing in the playoffs the fact you can get a win against their best pitcher would be something that you can you know put in the notebook and bring it back out during the playoffs and say okay we've we've done it we've shown we can do it now let's do it here when it really really matters yeah absolutely you know, and one thing this team has shown so far this year, you know, last year everybody said, oh, they can't play with the really good ball clubs. Well, like we talked about the other night, you know, they've already won the series, season series against the Giants. If you can find a way to win tonight and tomorrow, you win the season series against the Mets. You know, you've, you're tied with Milwaukee right now at two games apiece. You've got a four-game series with them over Memorial Day weekend. You know, so they're going to have a chance to really show that they can play well. And even the games they've lost against the good teams this year, have been really close competitive games. They've not really gotten blown out. They've been right there with everybody. So it's going to be fun because the rest of the month is going to be tough too. You've got Pittsburgh over the weekend, but then you go into Toronto and you've got, you got Toronto and Milwaukee at home, and then you have San Diego to end up the month. So it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge the rest of May. It certainly is. As Albert's now two for two against Max Scherzer today. And once again, throwing every number out there into the wind. Uh, he is on base with two outs in the top of the fourth. So we'll keep an eye on that game as we continue to go along here on the show. But let's go ahead and shift our attention over to uh, the winter sport that's still going on, which is uh, NHL playoff action. The Blues and the Avalanche got underway last night in Colorado for game one of their series. And as uh, as posted on our, our post today, it's amazing how quickly positivity and confidence could just go out the window after just one game. And yes, I know it's an overtime loss, and it's a game that looked close on paper, but was not close when you actually watched it. The Blues falling in overtime last night, 3-2 to two, to the Colorado Avalanche. And honestly, if not for Jordan Bennington, that game was a blowout in the first period. 
Yeah, I mean, Jordan Bennington is the only reason that game was close, like you said. They were – it it wasn't pretty. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I did not stay awake for that whole game last night. I had Don't to blame up, you. had to get up early this morning, so I fell asleep, and so I did not see most of the second or third period. But uh, when I looked at the stats this morning and saw that the, the amount of saves that Jordan Bennington had, I was like, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. You know, they, they must have played him at least tough, you know, to go to overtime. And I was like, okay. So, you know, we talked about, okay, if it's an overtime loss, maybe it's not that bad. And then I heard Craig Berube talking on the radio today. And any good feelings I have about this team are pretty much gone because Berube basically said, you know, this team's not on the same page. Everybody's playing for themselves. You know, not on the same page, not on the same page. I mean, he just kept repeating that. They're not in sync. They're not on the same page. That's not what you want to hear from your head coach when you're in the second round of the playoffs against the best team in hockey. Um, you know, and the fact that we keep hearing that message. I mean, how many times have we heard that from Craig Berube this year? That oh, these guys aren't on the same page. These aren't these guys aren't playing together, and it always ends up being the same three or four guys that we're talking about. I think yeah. that's a serious problem. It, it, it is, but I also look at it and go, yeah, we've heard it a couple of different times this year, but it's after a long run of somewhat success to where maybe these guys are getting a little bit full of themselves, a little bit you know, big-headed. And this is just that recalibration moment of, okay, hey, look, yeah, you guys have played well, but now you're starting to get a little bit big on and big heads on your shoulders. You're starting to not play the way that, you know, we were playing that got us to this point. And, and it kind of cuts them down a little bit. And Coach Berube has, has done a masterful job with this team as far as making the right changes when he needs to, saying the right things when he needs to, getting in players' business when he needs to. Now, playoffs are a wildly different beast and you don't have any time to work through things and that's why I think we're going to see some lineup changes going into game two not necessarily guys coming out of the lineup but you're probably going back to your standard 12-6 12 forward six defensemen you're you're probably going to see some line shuffling as well you know the the Buchnevich Tarasenko Thomas line zero points zero shots on goal minus five last night against Colorado and, and that's that's a lot of the credit towards the fact that Colorado had matching ability. You know, they had home ice, so they get the last change. They can match up who they want with where they want to go. So you can't look at that wholly and say, oh, that's the reason right there. Well, Colorado put the best matchup line against that line, and, and they dominated it. So I'm, I'm not going to be totally pessimistic in it, and that's why I, I say we're going we're gonna to give you some positive reasons why – the Blues still have a chance in this series. It's one game. You're not you're not out of it until you lose four. And yeah, it sucks. But it was game one in altitude. You didn't get there until Monday anyway, so you haven't had a whole bunch of time to accl- acclimate yourself to that change in in altitude. And yet you still lost in overtime. Yes, it took a huge effort from your goaltender to get you to that point, but. Ryan O'Reilly scored. Open the scoring for the Blues in that. So you showed that you can get off the hop. Good. Uh, Jordan Cairo fought through a lot of things in that game, yet somehow found a way to tie that game late up in the third period. The Blues power play, one for one. Okay, there you go. Special teams, you won that piece. They killed off three Colorado power plays, which if you looked at it going into that series, we talked about it last night, Colorado power play only 9.1% against the Blues in their three games this year. So if you can succeed and win the special teams battle, yeah, five on five is going to be tough with a team that's as dominant and as good as Colorado is, but you give yourself a fighting chance. And the Blues did not play their A game last night. No. Okay. 
Colorado played their A game last night. If the Blues can play their A game, they can match the Colorado A game. They may not beat it, but they can match it. And if they match that and you lost in overtime, that gives me some some decent feelings. I'm not going to sit there and say they're going to go out there and dominate in game two and end up rattling off four wins. But I'm not going to be all doom and gloom going into this. Now, if they continue to lose the face-off battle like they did last night, 64 to 36%, you're not going to win you're not going to win a game this series because in in the games against Minnesota, the, the games that they won the face-off battle, they won. The games that they lost the face-off battle, they lost. Well, last night they were horrific in the face-off dot. And if they cannot improve on that, the series is over in four. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, going back to real quick just the Baruby thing. I think the thing that worries me about that, his comments, I think the thing that worries me not just about this series, but the Blues going forward is the fact that, you know, you said, okay, some of these guys, they have some success and then it goes to their heads a little bit. I think it's a real concern when it's the guys that are supposed to be the young building blocks of this team. For They're supposed to be the leaders of this team over the next few years. When you're talking about, when you're constantly hearing Jordan Cairo's name get thrown out there is a guy that kind of loses focus. Robert Thomas's name that gets thrown out there by Craig Berube and not doing the things he's supposed to. I mean, Vladdy, you know, that happens, you know, every couple of months, Vladdy gets thrown out there for not doing something he's supposed to or disappearing in big moments. But when the guys like that, when Cairo and Thomas are constantly being brought up as, okay, they played really well. And then all of a sudden it's like, like you said, they kind of goes to their head and then they disappear and they don't play well. When, when it's guys like that, or they're supposed to be the future leaders of this team, and the building blocks that has to kind of worry a little bit because to me that that takes me back to a guy who everybody in St. Louis loved and was supposed to be a superstar in TJ Oshie, who we all know was more a me guy and more a hey, I'm gonna do whatever I want off the ice and not really pay attention to the team game thing a whole lot. And we all know how that played out. You know, those guys you can have great talent, but if they're not team guys and they're more me guy than team guy, you're not gonna win. And do you really want those guys on your team, no matter how talented they are? Well, I'll say uh, to counter that point, I'll, I'll say this. TJ Oshu has become a huge team player in Washington, won a Stanley Cup with the Capitals, and has definitely become a, a more mature player. And I think that's the thing is we look at that and we go, oh, man, yeah, they, they've been in the league a year or two. They, they, need to be, they need to be mature. They need to know how to handle this kind of stuff. And I'll be perfectly honest. I think every person, every young person kind of goes through these moments like, I'll use myself as, as an example. You know, I was very successful in my very first job. I, I got promoted to management like six months after being hired at 16. Um, I'll be honest, multiple times between the ages of 16 and 20, because I was in a leadership position, I got very, very cocky and I made decisions that I probably shouldn't have made. I, I did things I probably shouldn't have done. Um, I let things go to my head and maybe pissed off a lot of people. And I think that's sort of the same thing that we're seeing here. And, and I go back to this all the time. Anytime you see a younger team in, in a position to win a championship or, or to be successful in a, in a situation that maybe they weren't ready to, to be there, you know, I always say they ha- you, have to lose, you have to learn to lose to win. And in this instance, I think with, with the Robert Thomas, the fact that he won a Stanley Cup his first year in the league, that, that, that changes how you look at things. And I right. think you need to have those moments of adversity. And they've had some of those the last couple of years, you know, getting swept, you know, last year against Colorado, all those kinds of things. But I, don't, I still don't think guys like Robert Thomas or Jordan Cairo have had that shock moment to them. TJ Oshie had that shock moment when he was traded. 
And I think that made him sit back and go, oh, whoa, hold on a second. I was put on a pedestal here in St. Louis. Obviously, the Sochi thing happened. A lot of really, really good things happened for him. He never faced any sort of real adversity. And then he got got, got traded, and it's like, oh, shit. Um, that's got to that's gotta change. I don't think you have to trade a Thomas or a Cairo, but I think a lot of people have to look back and go, okay, you got to kind of have to cut these guys a bit of a break. Not Not to say you can't be hard on them, but – Thomas, Stanley Cup victory in his first year. He's the number two center on this team. He hasn't really had to face any sort of like, oh, hey, you're going down to the minors again to work on yourself. Jordan Cairo has dealt with some injury history the last couple of years. Hasn't really been you know full-time here in the NHL. Then first real full-time position in the league, he blows up in the first half, becomes an all-star, the lone all-star for our team, gets you know shrouded with all these accolades, and then he has a – yeah, kind of second half, but hasn't really faced any discipline for it in a sense. So you start to feel like you can get away with things and then all this stuff starts to happen. So I look at it and I go, man, yeah, these guys are the future, but they have to get knocked down a little bit before they can really take on that mature level that they should have. But kind of to your point, you know, you got a David Perron, you got a Ryan O'Reilly, you got a Vladimir Tarasenko on these teams. And yeah, young guys aren't going to necessarily be willing to listen to these guys, even though they should, but they need to be a bit more in their ear to really try and help build these guys back up. And I think that's part of the reason why Barube kind of called them out, not by name, but just saying, look, they're in the, we're, we're in our heads. We're, we're doing things for ourselves and not for the team. That's, that's not necessarily just a wake-up call for the young guys, but it's kind of a wake-up call for these veterans to go, okay, look, he may not be talking about me, but I think I know who he's talking about. I need to start having these conversations and really kind of redirecting these guys so that Coach Barubi doesn't have to do it and then all of a sudden becomes a big story. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just something that you look at and you're like, okay. I, like you said, I, understand, I totally understand the, you know, young and doing things that, you know, egos, we all, we all have that happen. We all the, have. In, in that age bracket. But, you know, at some point when it keeps coming up, you've got to, they do have to start to mature a little bit and start to figure this out because, it's not like they're rookies anymore. They have been around for a couple of years now. And at some point you do have to grow up and you hope, I really hope that you don't have to have the moment like you did with TJ Oshie when the Blues had to go, okay, you're spending more time on the East side than you are on the hockey rink. It's it's time to send you somewhere else. And and I mean, that's honestly the truth. Cause I can tell you, I can tell you from past experience that I saw TJ on the East side quite a few times back in those days. Oh boy, I'm sure that there's some stories you probably can't tell on air, but uh, you know, if we, if you want to, we we can definitely talk about yeah, some stuff no, on we air. Probably, we, probably, we probably shouldn't on air, but yeah, I definitely I definitely ran into him over there a couple of times back in the day. Well, he and, and Eric Johnson were were guys that that's that's what the stories were, and obviously yeah. both guys, you know, Eric Johnson had the whole golf cart accident, and then he gets traded to Colorado, and you can kind of see, I guess two trajectories in a sense. And I'm not going to sit there and say Eric Johnson hasn't had a great career. Uh, I mean, he's had a really good career with Colorado. He's played for the Olympic team and he, you know, he's played well, but for a number one overall pick, it hasn't been the career that you were, would expect, but you're seeing that he is still a capable player on, on a high end team. So sometimes a trade does shock the system and, and really kind of mature oh, somebody up very, very quickly. And, with the skill and talent level of both a Cairo and a Thomas, you can't risk trading either one of them, I don't think, right now, because that, that is something that, when it comes to fruition, we've seen it, especially with Thomas, that 
there's some real skill there and real talent. And you put those guys with the right people, all of a sudden it, it's a game changer. And I, I think you're going to see both of those guys on the same line. I think you're going to have Thomas and Kyrou playing on the same line here in game two to really force the offensive punch because that's something the Blues weren't able to put forth yesterday was an offensive punch. It was still a lot of defending, 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 defending. And yeah, you're going to have to sacrifice a little bit of that to, to kind of you know go toe for toe with Colorado. But I think you'll see those two paired up on a line tomorrow, at least at the start, just to see if you can kind of change the, the aspect of that game up there in Colorado. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it'll be interesting to see how they do change those lines and see what happens. And while we talk about all the negativity, I mean, you can't give Jordan Bennington enough credit for what he did last night. I mean, he, he was pretty much Superman out there last night. He was 51 saves, um, a few just absolute gems, couple of save of the year kind of candidates. Although, although the one with him going basically all the way across uh, the, the, the crease and then gloving that shot by Eric Johnson, he whiffed on the shot. So, I mean, it was an easy save, but you still have to get over there and make it. So right. the fact that he was, he really was seeing the puck. Well, um, it, it just, you know, that last goal in overtime, he, he had seen so much that you, you almost can't fault him for, for letting that one in. Um, but you cannot continuously allow him to see 50 plus shots in a game and expect to win this series. No. Yeah. If that happens, if that happens, the series is going to be over really, really quickly. Yeah, it, it certainly is. So are you still confident that this is going at least six? I mean, or seven? Like I told you last night, they've got to win one of these two games in Colorado. If they, if they, if they lose tomorrow night, I really think the series is probably over in four. I, I don't see them. I don't see them coming home and winning both games. I mean, you could make it three to one, but then it's over in five. I mean, you know, I, I think they really have to win tomorrow. I think I think it's a make or break. If they win tomorrow, I think it goes deep. If they lose tomorrow, I think it ends really quickly. Okay, well, that game will be going on between eight thirty and nine o'clock tomorrow night. You know, with national television, you just never know exactly when. Right. That game is actually going to start, but uh, we'll be with you guys leading up to that tomorrow night uh, here on the Toasted Tavern, so make sure you join us for that. Uh, let's jump into, uh, before we get to the NBA, let's talk a little bit about what's going on over in the NCAA. I don't know if you got a chance to see this or not. I actually just saw this right before we went on, so I don't have a ton of information on it, but the NCAA has relaxed its restrictions on conference championship games in college football. And basically that what that means is, Conferences are now going to be able to determine who can participate in those title games. So the Pac-12 has already dissolved their conferences. They are going strictly to just one division. That's all it is. Divisions have been eliminated in the Pac-12. So now they're going to basically put in the top two winning percentage teams into that championship game for the Pac-12. Because the last couple of times that this has happened, you know, you've had a, an unranked UCLA team going up against Stanford and then a 9-5 and five UCLA team going because they won their division right. versus being one of the top teams in the Pac-12. So uh, you're seeing that the ACC and the Pac-12 actually both kind of were pushing for this change here the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, the Pac-12 kind of got it, got it done in a sense. So they've you know, essentially devolved, dissolved their divisions. And the ACC is going to be very, very close behind because they've kind of been in the same boat as well. We, you know, their, their top two teams haven't necessarily faced off in the title right. game. So uh, because of these, these relaxation of rules, are we going to see any other conferences go that direction? Are we going to see the Big Ten do that? I mean, is the SEC even thinking about something along those lines? 
Um, is it, are we going to see this happen across the country, or is it really just these two conferences that have really struggled in that aspect? I think it's probably going to be those two conferences. I don't see the SEC doing it because I think I think you're going to have too many teams going. Wait a minute, if we go just strictly, if we just go strictly, you know, two best teams. You know, how many times does you know are we going to have Alabama and LSU every year? Or you know, I mean, that's the way it would have been for you know three or four years there. So, um, yeah, I, I think the SEC will stay. Um, that'll help teams like Mizzou. I don't, you know, definitely. Um, so I don't think they change. The Big Ten I can see potentially changing because they've had kind of that same issue happen to them a couple of times. So I think it's going to be a conference by a conference decision. But I can see the Big Ten doing it. I don't necessarily see the SEC doing it. Like I said, um, the ACC definitely needed to because you know they've had some weird conference championship games the last couple of years so it'll be interesting to see you know what is the big 12 what's left in the big 12 in the next couple of years for one thing and then uh yeah how the sec plays that out because like i said i don't think i think a lot of teams in the sec would fight back against that i think you're right as well because the sec is a little bit more loaded than most of these other conferences so the the acc especially in in the pac-12 too as Sosa dumps one into uh, left field, uh, you've got basically two teams, but they're in the same conference. So you know they don't play each other in the title game. And then all of a sudden, you're not really sure who the best team is coming out of that conference. Um, so I think you're going to get a little bit more of a, I guess, more potential for the right teams in the, you know, the national championship picture. Um but with that being the case, you know, the fact that they've been talking about expanding the playoff as well, does this help or hinder the the push for an expanded playoff? Because you really are going to get the best teams in each conference, essentially outside of the SEC and any other conference that doesn't make this change. You're going to see the best team come out of those conferences. So do you really need an expanded playoff or does this give more ammunition because the top two teams are going to battle it out and one still is going to miss out? I don't think it's going to make much of a difference about the expanded playoffs. That's going to happen because it's a huge money maker for teams and in host cities and things like that. So, you know, eventually that will happen. Um, I'm really excited to see college football start here in the next couple of years. I'm really, I'm more excited about what's going on in Columbia than I've been in quite a while. Cause I think the next three or four years in Mizzou are going to be some fun, fun football. I think we're going to, Flashback to the Gary Pinkle days. I think we're going to see that kind of success coming out of Columbia, Missouri in the next three or four years. I hope that is the case. And we're going to have to get BK back on here to talk about that because he is the Mizzou voice over there on 101 ESPN. So we're going to have to reach out to him and see if we can get him to come on and talk a little bit about Mizzou sports because that's another one of those, even though it's a local college, they slew these local colleges don't get a whole lot of play when it comes to being talked about in, in the sports realm, which is a little odd and concerning. I mean, obviously with Mizzou not being super successful in either basketball or football as of late, I can understand why there's been a, a less of an emphasis on it, but you know, Drinkwitz has, has been a big, big name and he's brought a lot of excitement to that, you know, program. And then, you know, you saw what Illinois did in basketball this past year. Yeah. Football team hasn't been great, but then slew basketball has been big as well. So i I feel like we're, we're missing out on some coverage of these colleges. And by getting a, a guy like BK on here to talk about it, not just on one-on-one, but maybe on a couple of different outlets, uh, is definitely something that needs to happen a little bit more. 
Yeah, and you know, Mizzou football. If Mizzou football starts to take off, it'll be big. I mean, you remember how huge Mizzou football was during that Gary Pingle run. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, it pretty much took over everything in St. Louis, and of course, Jeremy Macklin was a huge part of that in the St. Louis area because of his success. And Luther Burton could very well be that same kind of a spark that really reignites St. Louis's excitement about Mizzou, you know, because Burton's going to be a Jeremy Macklin level superstar. And, you know, and there's a lot of other St. Louis area guys on that team right now. So I think you're going to see some, uh, some excitement come out of Mizzou football and, you know, Mizzou basketball is going to be really interesting next year too, because they've, they've done some interesting things through the, through the transfer portal, so that'll be exciting. And you know, SLU should be a big dance team next year. I mean, should we've talked about it the last couple of years? I think next year, with everybody coming back and guys getting completely healthy, I think next year the Billikens are going to be almost dominant in the A10. And I still think the Billikens need to look at moving to a different conference. I just don't think they get. I just don't think they get the recognition that they deserve being in the A10. It's just not looked at as some of the other conferences are around the country. If you were to pick a conference that you'd love to see them get into, which one would it be? I mean, I think I don't think the Missouri Valley, Valley Conference, in a sense, is, is a direction they want to go. It might be a bit of a step down, not to put down the, the talent level in the NBC. It's it's a great conference for for sure. But you know, do you look at them going to a Big, Big Ten, East. Big, Big East? East? Okay, okay, because it's it's basically a basketball conference at this point. You know, with Georgetown, you know, you you get a bunch of Catholic schools up there as well. You know, with Georgetowns and with some of those teams, there's there's no football teams in that conference anymore. It's basically a basketball conference, and I think I think that's where they need to be. Honestly, I mean, I know the travel would not be wouldn't be much different than the A10. You know, you still have that same. You wouldn't have a lot of regional rivalries, but you're playing big games, and you're going to get on you're going to get on ESPN and stuff more when you're playing in Georgetown and. Syracuse and some of those big East teams. Yeah, I, I think you're you know you're probably right on par for the course there. I mean, the travel wouldn't be that big of a change, and you've got the bigger names, you've got a, a potential for bigger exposure, uh, and it would also allow a, a conference like the Big East to expand westward, which is we've seen with these other conferences. That's what they're looking to do. They're not necessarily worried about where they're already at. It's about where they're going to be able to go, and if you can reach deeper into a which becoming a big basketball hotbed for, for college athletes. I mean, what better way than to get into the, to the Missouri Midwest market, that St. Louis market and start to bring some of these marketable stars in. And, you know, speaking of one of those, you know, we had Jason Tatum, you know, he is now playing in Boston and, you know, he went to Duke and helped raise the profile of St. Louis basketball players once more. And I mean, we've had a lot of great, St. Louis basketball products, you know, Bradley Beal, one of them, Larry Hughes, obviously as well. And, you know, Larry Hughes Jr. is, is uh, moving up in, in the, the ranks of great college, ba- uh, college basketball players to come here in the St. Louis area. So it would be huge. I think for the big East, it'd be, it's, it's, it's a win-win I think for both the school and the conference. Well, yeah. And how many, how many of those big star kids from St. Louis would be more likely to stay home? If you say, Hey, you're playing in the big East and you're going to go, play in Georgetown and Madison square garden a couple of times a year. And you're going to play, you know, you're going to be on ESPN and you're going to, you're going to be more talked about, you know, that would make a huge difference because like you said, it's, it's, you know, it, I still think it sucks that Jason Tatum didn't go to Slope. I mean, I know that he had the chance to go to Duke, but it would have been cool to see him following his dad and his uncle Larry's uh, godfather, Larry's footsteps and stayed at home and played in Slope. Yeah. 
It, it certainly would, but he did go to Duke. He got drafted by the Celtics, and the Celtics were in action last night. Game one of the Eastern Conference Finals between them and the Miami Heat. And Tatum had a good game, 29 points, eight boards, and six assists. But the guy we talked about last night that, you know, in my mind, I would be very, very happy with and kind of deserves a chance at a title, Jimmy Butler, Went off for 41 points last night as the Heat take game one. He had five players, four of their starters in double figures. Uh, the Celtics were down a couple guys, though. I mean, Marcus Smart was out with a foot sprain. And the bigger surprise was the fact that Al Horford was out once again. Uh, this is the third time that he's been put in the health and safety protocols. Uh, tested positive for COVID back in the preseason, missed a game, and missed out again during uh, the season, and now is out again for an unspecified amount of time. So the Celtics were down two of their big key supporters for Jason Tatum. And with the team being one of those that was looked at as being a potential title favorite, not having those two guys losing game one, even despite Jason Tatum's best effort, it, it, Marcus Smart's probable for game two. So getting him back would be huge. But if they don't get Al Horford back in, in a decent amount of time, are the Celtics essentially done? That that would be a huge loss for them to not have Horford for a serious amount of this series. Yeah, that, that really puts them kind of in a bad spot, like you said. You know, and Miami Miami doesn't get the credit they deserve because that is a very talented ball club. It, it is. I mean, like I said, Butler kind of carried that team, but overall they've got a very good team. They've been on the rise for the last couple of years as well with a lot of under-the-radar kind of players. And we talked about Spolstra last night being a, a guy that, you know, you look at as being a guy that is a really, really good coach. And he's done a lot with a little in certain instances. And we saw that again last night where uh, basically an underdog team went in and they they took game one against a, a high-powered kind of Boston Celtics team. Yeah, you know, like we said, Miami's got those guys that kind of fly under the radar, the Tyler Heroes, the Bama Bayou guys that are just that are just guys, but they come up with big moments. And they have the last couple of years for that team. And sometimes it's the team mentality over the individual performance, and we saw that last night. Tatum tried to will his team to win, whereas the the, the Heat had a team aspect. Uh, of, you know, like I said, five players in double figures. The Celtics had four in double figures, but it, it felt like with, with the Heat, it was more of that team dynamic of getting the right guy the, the ball at the right time to make a shot. And if they can continue to do that, then it's going to prove very, very troublesome for, for the uh, the Boston Celtics. The game one of the Western Conference Finals gets underway tonight between the Warriors and the Mavericks. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk a whole lot about this uh, this matchup last night. We touched on it just a bit. Uh, but you know, what, what's your outlook for this Mavericks-Warriors series? I mean, it seems like it's going to be close to a 50-50 split, but I mean, I think Golden State may still have a bit of an edge. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think it's going to be a good series, but, you know, if Golden State's big three plays the way they're capable of, which they've done up and down in the playoffs at this point, they've had really good games and they've had games where they've all three struggled. But if Steph, Clay, and Draymond are on their games, they're pretty tough to beat as they're going for their fourth championship. You know, that's a that's a dynasty when you start talking about four championships and, you know, they've done it with – a lot of people coming in there. Of course, Kevin Durant was there for part of that. And his decision to uh, not need those guys and go to Brooklyn and play with uh, play with some other people hasn't exactly worked out real well, has it? No, no. It's, it almost seems like Kevin Durant isn't a good decision maker. Hmm. That's no. interesting. No, that's you know. That's interesting. 
you know, again, it's another guy who decided that his ego was too big that, you know, I don't need those guys. I'll go, I can do it myself. Well, it didn't really work when you decided that you didn't need Oklahoma. You know, you didn't want to play with Russ and you didn't want to play with Harden and you're going to go to Golden State. And of course you ran into some championships there with that group. And then you said, oh, well, yeah, I don't need you anymore. I, I can do it by myself. Well, yeah, no, not so much. So this, and and you know I'm not a a huge LeBron fan as a basketball player. I'm a big fan of LeBron as a person. Don't get me wrong; he's done a lot of amazing things for not only Cleveland but for other people in, in this country. But do you have to look back at, at LeBron's decisions and almost give him a little bit of credit for recognizing that he does he did need help and and went down and played with D Wade and Chris Bosch down there and then brought guys into Cleveland and then essentially brought guys into LA as well. I mean, we, we gave him a lot of crap for, for doing that. I mean, the decision, the decision was probably something he probably didn't need to do, but the, the whole genesis behind it all of going to, to play with guys that, you know, fit his style of play could help him get to those championships. Do we kind of have to sit back and go, okay, maybe, I mean, he wasn't wrong in that sense. Uh, yes, super teams aren't great for the league itself, but he made the right decision. He recognized he needed help, and he went and found help, whether it was going somewhere or bringing guys into his situation. I mean, you got to give LeBron some credit, right? Oh, um, yeah, I guess to a certain extent. And then you have to question, and I, this is going to sound crazy to say, but do you have to question how good Kevin Durant really is? I mean, sure. Yeah, he's been one of the elite players in the game, but was it Kevin Durant or was it the fact that in Oklahoma he had Russell Westbrook, a young Russell Westbrook, and he had a young James Harden, and he had all those other guys there. And then he went to Golden State and he had Steph and Clay and Draymond. You know, and then he decided, hey, I'm going to go with Kyrie and we're going to do it. Well, you know, Kyrie's like a part-time player at this point. And, you know, and then it just hasn't worked. And, you know, then, hey, let's go get James Harden. That's a good idea. He'll come back here because he plays well with others. Let's bring him in here and we'll win. No. And, you know, Durant just hasn't been able to do it. You know, so, again, the only time he really actually, you know, he got to a he got to a championship game in Oklahoma when he had three other really good players. He yep. got to the championships in Golden State when he had three other players. When it's just been him and Kyrie, it hasn't really worked. Yeah, it's so almost like – yeah, you have to say, is he really as good as we thought he was? I mean, you have to sit there and go, maybe Kendrick Perkins was the greatest player of that Oklahoma grouping because <laughs> he ended up going to Boston and playing very, very well, being a part of championships there as well. So you know, maybe it was all Kendrick Perkins that, uh, that that was the glue that held everything together. It could have been because none of those other guys in Oklahoma have really done well when they've moved around. I mean, Russ hasn't been able to do anything. Harden's not been the guy that he likes to think that he is. And, uh, yeah, so maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it was all Kendrick Perkins. And, and you can't necessarily blame Kyrie for being a part-time player this year, in a sense, because of, of the COVID restrictions in, in New York and all those sorts of things and his belief system and, and that sort of stuff. So that's a whole political thing that we're not going to get into at all because that's not what this show is about. We're not about touching on people's political aspirations or anything like that. But because of the stipulations that were put down on him, he was not able to play as much as he probably could have this year. But – I get your point. He, even when he did play, especially in Cleveland, was he really a full-time guy there in every single game? No, not at all. You know, and uh, you have to respect Kyrie. You know, Kyrie's an outside-the-box thinker. You know, he's got lots of ideas. You know, the world's flat and all of those things. That Kyrie likes to think. 
but you know he, when you're making notion from uh, I got that notion on the plane that he was flying in that saw the horizon rolling over and over. Yeah. You know, but when you're making $35 million and you decide, hey, I'm not going to play for the next couple of weeks because I have other things I want to do. I mean, you know, then you have to question, then you have to question how devoted he is to his teammates, all of those things. So while I respect that he has ideas and he, he has beliefs, you also have to look at the fact that, you know, you're also hurting your teammates and those kind of things when you do some of the stuff that he does as well. So, you know, look at it both ways. And as we know, there are, uh, Flat Earthers, do you prescribe to the theory that there are plenty of Flat Earthers around the globe? So there is that too. Ha, 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 ha. That's the running joke in, in a right. lot of circles. So, uh, yeah, but you can't you can't poo-poo on somebody's beliefs unless no. it's dangerous. Uh, right, right. <laughs> that's a whole different story. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is interesting to see what, what the question marks on Kevin Durant are for sure, because he was really good in Texas as well, down at, at you know, as a Longhorn. So you can't necessarily necessarily sit there and say he was surrounded by a ton of talent in Texas either. And he did a lot of really good things down there, but I, I, I agree with you. I think he's a guy that has made decisions that are questionable and, you know, people gave him crap for going to golden state and trying to win a, trying to chase a championship over there. Well, now you look back at it and you go, well, yeah, that kind of probably was the only way he was going to win one. So that was smart on his part to go and get his, his championship when he could bank on that, get the money he could, could off of that championship and that's what he's done and i mean you feel for him because you know you, you do as a person you do want to be a guy or a, a woman that grabs somebody and drags them along and helps them succeed and you succeed as well but for him it just has not worked out no it really hasn't jumping right back to the cardinals real quick this cardinals mess next couple of games could get interesting as jake walsh just hit francisco Lindor. So that's three bets that we've hit tonight now. So, uh, yeah. Well, somebody, two and a half. Two and a half. Somebody from the Cardinals is going to get plunked in the next couple of days. It's coming. Uh, yeah, and then you're going to start to see Mets fans throw stuff on the field at some point, too. Although the Mets do just take the lead there on the RBI single. A 3-2 lead here in the bottom of fifth. Nobody out as Walsh gave up the RBI single there to Alonzo. So, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, that's not that's not boding well because once again that means you know Jordan Hicks did not go very deep in this game and now you're getting into that bullpen of guys that uh, are not your lockdown guys. Yeah, and I missed it. Somebody from the Cardinals came off the field a few minutes ago. I don't Sosa. know who was Edmundo Sosa? Sosa. Yeah, so Donovan moved over to the third, and Tommy Edmond, who was out tonight after getting hit by a pitch, is now in at second base. Okay, yeah, I just I just saw the tail end of him going in the dugout, so I missed who it was. So. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I just know that he is out of the game and had to move people around. So, uh, yeah, this game is going to be interesting. The rest of this series is going to be interesting for sure. We're definitely going to recap the the rest of tonight's game as well as tomorrow's afternoon game on our next show tomorrow night. We'll also break down and get you ready for Blues and Avalanche game two and uh, also kind of keep you updated on that Celtics and Heat series as well as, as we got local kid Justin uh, Jason Tatum in uh, in that uh, in that series as he – pushes for a championship as well. So uh, before we head out tonight, Scott, you got anything else uh, that you want to talk about? Anything on the horizon? Uh, one quick NFL note. There were some rumors today that even though Carolina says he's still probably not available, Buffalo and Carolina have at least had a couple of conversations again about a possible Christian McCaffrey trade. Buffalo has been trying to make that happen all off season. So uh, that would be really interesting as rumors are also starting to fly again that, 
Carolina may still be interested in Baker Mayfield. So there could be some Panthers moves in the next week or two. That's going to be something to look forward to. I mean, we haven't had a whole lot of NFL news since the uh, the draft anyway. So let's let's keep our fingers crossed that some fun stuff is coming down the pipeline. I do know Deshaun Watson in the NFL uh, also met uh, earlier this week as well. So maybe some resolution on that, which would eventually in turn lead to some resolution on what Baker Mayfield's future is as well. So I think that's kind of what the the holdup is right now is until they until the Browns know exactly what the situation with Deshaun Watson is, they're going to hang on to Baker Mayfield just to be safe and have a quarterback in camp uh, before the regular season. I mean, I haven't heard any uh, any res- resolution from that that meeting between the two, but you got to think something's coming sooner rather than later. I mean, it would have to. You know, I, I've seen different reports, different people speculate. I've seen anything from they're going to suspend him for 12 games to 10 games to he may miss the entire season. Um, so, you know, Cleveland, Cleveland may have gotten themselves in a mess that they didn't anticipate with how long Deshaun's actually going to be out and what you do with Baker. Because, I mean, can you imagine if, if Deshaun Watson's suspended for the season and the Browns going, uh, hey, Baker, uh, guess what, buddy? You're starting. I mean, is Baker Mayfield going to be like, okay, yeah, I can't wait to run out on the field for you guys and uh, put my body out there for you to see if I can stay healthy and uh, try to win games because – I got so much love in Cleveland this last year. Well, I mean, it, it is the Browns. So, I mean, it wouldn't be a season without quarterback issues in Cleveland. As, as Until Baker Mayfield came along, they just continuously ran through a string of quarterback after quarterback after quarterback being unsuccessful. So, you know, it's the Browns. You feel for their fans. I know you are a fan of theirs as well. So definitely feel for you and – the, the kind of up and down craziness that is the Cleveland Browns. But uh, yeah, it, it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out as, as Walsh is now exiting the game after 18 pitches. He's given up a run. Bases are loaded, no outs. So yay bullpen. Yep. Another quick NFL thing. I know we're about to get out of here, but did you see the tweet from Drew Brees the other day where he said he might be an NBC, he might be playing football? Wouldn't that be something if Drew Brees decided to come back and Maybe he goes to Miami and finally becomes a Dolphin quarterback at, what, 43? Hey, you know, I mean, that would be interesting for sure. I mean, there were reports out that NBC was done with him after one year, and then he's like, whoa, 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 I haven't made the decision yet, although it's probably NBC's decision more than anything else. So, uh, And then you also hear, you know, the fact that, you know, people are saying, oh, he's going to go to Fox. Well, Fox and Tom Brady have agreed to like a 10-year deal after he retires. So I'm pretty sure Drew Brees isn't going to go to Fox and go, hey, I'm at Fox. Wait, Brees is reti- or Brady's retiring after this year? Man, that's another year in a booth and I'm out again? Yeah, but, you know, Tom may not retire for another 10 years. So Yeah, and you never know. How, if you're Fox, do you give him that much money when he's never done anything broadcast-wise? Uh, because everything else he's done so far has been turned into gold and you're hoping to strike – uh, another uh, gold piece, especially after losing Buck and Aikman, you got to keep you got to keep some name recognition with you until you know because you don't. I mean, do you know who the lead broadcaster is for this uh, upcoming season at Fox? I mean, I know you do, but like, does anybody really know who the lead analyst and the lead broadcaster for Fox is this year? You no, know, I understand that, but ten years, three hundred. I mean, they're paying him more money than he's made in twenty-two years as a starting quarterback in the league. To do something that he's never – nobody even knows if he can do it. Yeah, you know, and I'm sitting here paying $20,000 a year to go to school and get a degree for something that says that I can do it. Jeez. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's just crazy. Uh, you know, it's Tom, so it'll probably work out. But, you know, I mean, who gets that kind of a deal? Hey, we're going to give you 10 years, $370 million, and we don't know when it'll start. It might be next year. It might be three years from now. It could be. I mean, it's just, it, yeah. you know, especially when they balked at the fact that Aikman wanted to make $16 million. You know, it's like, wait, how does that happen? Yeah, that that is the, the the crazy thing is that you're you're spending that money to take a chance on an unknown quantity when you have a known quantity that maybe doesn't even want that much money and you're going to let him go to a, a rival in a sense. Yes, it's one game a week, but it's Monday night football. Like that's that's going to raise his profile even more and yeah, I mean maybe ESPN would have thrown that money at at Brady if Aikman and Bucket stayed at at Fox, but they may not have. So it's just another case of Fox trying to do everything that they possibly can to keep the spotlight on them without necessarily putting out a great product. And uh, I say that with all due respect to the Fox organization, because if you're ever looking to hire anybody, <laughs> I'm sitting right here and I will speak glowingly of you every time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. Well, uh, Cardinals are looking to try and escape this as Whitgren is in now for the Cardinals. Uh, like I said, we'll recap this game as well as tomorrow's afternoon game on the show tomorrow night. Uh, until then, enjoy this game. Enjoy the uh, the game tomorrow afternoon and enjoy the pregame leading up to tomorrow's Blues and Avalanche game. We'll be with you on Thursday uh, tomorrow night to preview that as well. And anything else for you, Scott? Nope, that's it, man. Let's just hope the uh, bullpen can settle down and keep this game close. Uh, yeah, 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 because hopefully the offense will be able to get something going maybe after Max gets uh, knocked out of this game, if he gets knocked out of this game. So we'll keep an eye on that, and like I said, we'll recap it tomorrow night. Until then, for Scott Tobin, I am Wags. Have a great rest of your evening and a good afternoon tomorrow. Until then, we'll see you then. Hey, it's you, man, here from Casey. For all your sports news, catch the Toasted Tavern with Scott Tobin and the man called Wags weeknights at 9 p.m. You can follow Toasted Tavern on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Let's get toasted.